Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Is this the right one for an argument? How to disagree humbly. I've told you once. <laughs> no, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. I did. I didn't. I'm telling you, I did. You did not. Oh, I'm sorry, is this a five-minute argument or the full half hour? If someone disagrees with you, should you be a little less confident about your position? If someone disagrees with you, does that mean you should reconsider your position? If someone disagrees with you, doesn't that just mean they're wrong? No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. <laughs> you just contradicted me. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. How do you distinguish reasonable disagreement from mere stubbornness? Can we be humble without being pushovers? Our guest is Nathan Ballantyne from Fordham University. How to disagree humbly. How about enough of this? There you have it. Oh, shut up. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Should you cling to your beliefs even when others disagree? Or should you reconsider them when they're challenged? Is it possible to disagree without being disagreeable? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Josh Landy. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today it's How to Disagree Humbly. Another episode in our ongoing series on intellectual humility. I think this is a vitally urgent uh, topic, uh, Josh, because these days people too often try to shut up or shout down those who disagree with them. Okay, but I, I think it's always been that way, Ken. I mean, I think about Cain and Abel, right? I mean, they, they disagree over some silly sacrifice, uh, and then they forget to go to family therapy, well, and, you okay. know, disaster ensues. I, 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 take, I take your point, but that just shows... It, the continuing importance of learning to disagree agreeably. Otherwise, yeah, we'll end up like Cain and Abel killing each other. Well, nonetheless, come on. Diversity of thought and opinion are good things, aren't they? And, and look, you can't force people to agree. So disagreement's just going to remain a part of human life. Well, okay, I agree with that too, but I just shows that there's all the more reason we need better ways of dealing with disagreement since it's a permanent fact of life. Well, so what kind of ways do you have in mind? Well, let's just start out with something pretty simple, maybe obvious, like when other people disagree with you, you should at least consider the possibility, however briefly, that maybe you're the one who's got it wrong. Come on, Ken. You believe in the theory of evolution, don't you? Oh, well, of course I do. Why do uh, you ask? Well, so what happens when you hear a creationist rejecting that theory? I mean, do you really start considering the possibility that maybe you're the one who's wrong? <laughs> of course not, Josh. Well, so what does that make you, a hypocrite? No, Josh, you're taking it what I'm saying in the wrong way. I'm not saying that you should question your beliefs whenever some random know-nothing disagrees. I I'm talking about the uh, disagreements among reasonable well-informed people. That's what you should pay attention to. Okay, and by reasonable and well-informed, you mean people who agree with you. <laughs> Josh, come on. No, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about 
uh, you know, people who have their beliefs, base their beliefs on like evidence, who care about things like truth, who who aren't prone to wishful thinking, who think logically, you know, people like you and me. All right. So people don't have to share your beliefs. No. But no. apparently they have to share your habits of mind. That's not very humble of you. Ken. I don't I don't see anything wrong with that, Josh. What's wrong with that? Well, look, here's the problem. I mean, you know, you seem to think that you can determine in advance whose beliefs are worth taking seriously and whose are not. I, you know, that's, that's intellectual snobbery. Well, it's not intellectual snobbery. I mean, if you're totally unwilling to divide people into the reasonable and the unreasonable, how are you ever going to avoid having to listen to every Tom or Tina with a dissenting opinion? I, I just think you're having trying to have it both ways, Ken. I, you know, be willing to reconsider in the face of disagreement, but don't listen to anybody who comes along. Well, you, you got a better idea, Josh? Yeah, I do. Don't be so wishy-washy. <laughs> Stick to your gut. Stick to your guns, regardless what other people think, regardless who they are. But you can't be serious. Well, look, look, look. I mean, I, I totally agree that you should take time and care making up your mind on something, right? And, and while you're doing that, you should weigh all the evidence you can get your hands on. And sure, that's going to involve exposing yourself to different points of view. Well, exactly. We're on the same page then. But, but once you've made up your mind... Then you can't go around changing it every time somebody disagrees with you. Wait a minute, Josh. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Suppose somebody takes just as much time and care as you did, maybe even more time and care, and they come to a different conclusion. I mean, come on, even you, Josh, shouldn't you give at least that give you at least a little bit of pause? There's always going to be people who disagree. I, I just don't think you can give in to them. I mean, look, if you start down that path, where's it going to stop? Well, Josh, but if you're so, I don't know, intellectually stubborn that you never listen to anybody who disagrees with you, you're going to get stuck in a rut of falsehood, I think. And if you're so intellectually wishy-washy that you always listen to those who disagree, you'll never have any convictions. Oh, Josh, you know, I think we've gotten ourselves into something of a pickle here. Well, I know just the person to help us. That would be our roving philosophical reporter. Liza Veal. We sent her out to investigate an intense disagreement sparked by a philosophy article of all things, an article that turned out to be anything but academic. She files this report. You may remember when Rachel Dolezal was in the news, a white woman who manipulated her appearance to pass as African-American for years. You might also remember another controversy in the wake of the outrage and ridicule over Dolezal. Here's what happened. A philosophy professor named Rebecca Tubell wrote an article for a feminist philosophy journal, questioning why someone like Dolezal can't legitimately identify with a race other than her biological one when we defend transgender people's identification with a gender different from the one assigned to them at birth. Jesse Singal wrote about the controversy for the New York Times Magazine. The article was met with a really fierce backlash from you know, a combination of folks who saw themselves as advocating for trans people, uh, including plenty of trans scholars themselves, as well as those who were offended that she would come anywhere close to defending transracialism. And the journal ended up basically publishing an apology, which is incredibly unusual. Singal says there were two categories of critiques. Some academics attributed what they saw as errors in Tuval's scholarship to the fact that the field of philosophy is so homogenous and its methodology is so insular that it ignores racial and gender theorists who are not strictly philosophers. In his article, Singal contends with some of these arguments. But then there's the response from the general public. There were sort of more difficult to adjudicate claims about who should be writing about who and about 
whether a cis woman should be wading into this area at all. Um, those were sort of claims about identity and who's allowed to write what. Within hours of publication, the author of the article, Rebecca Tubell, heard the news that it was causing a dust-up. She got an email from a colleague advising her to retract the article. Here's Tubell herself. And at that point, I went online and you know, saw the conversation surrounding my piece and you know, fellow feminists calling me a, a Becky and you know, I was being accused of epistemic violence and transmisogynistic violence. If you're unfamiliar with those terms, calling someone a Becky is like calling them a stupid, ignorant, you know, white girl. And it, it is a gendered term. And epistemic violence means harming people through discourse. Epistemology is about knowledge. In this case, the potential harm is in delegitimizing trans identities by associating them with something widely ridiculed, like transracialism. Or it's in disrespecting the lived experiences of non-white people by speculating that someone white could legitimately identify the same way they do. Real people live in these identities, the definitions of which Tuvel was contesting. I absolutely was convinced that I had done something terrible in writing this article, and I felt humiliated and, and ashamed and all the kinds of feelings that go along with you know, a group of respected people telling you that you've done something really terrible. But to Jesse Singal, the New York Times Magazine reporter, Tuvel was being unfairly punished. Whether her argument needed to be refined or not, he didn't believe the line of inquiry itself was a non-starter. He felt like, instead of being intellectually humble, her opponents immediately wrote it off as beyond the pale. These battle lines were drawn, and the perception was the only people who could possibly defend this article were transphobic, and the only people who would attack the article are, are pro-trans and progressive and good. Singal says there was an idea that the article's very existence caused harm, and therefore Tubell as a person was beyond the bounds of respectful, good-faith disagreement. I was quite shocked, in fact, to see fellow feminist colleagues and fellow philosophers engaging in the personal attacks against me. The deluge of social media attacks took a while to recover from, but she's doubling down on the question of transracialism and writing a book about it now. She says ideas like these shouldn't be outright condemned. They should be dealt with. Because we need to be able to articulate you know, what we think is mistaken about them, right? That it's really important that we discuss the strongest arguments on multiple sides of an issue. The problem is, Tuvel and Singal both agree that there are areas of discourse that are beyond dignifying with civilized debate. Singal gives the example of eugenics, or the pseudoscientific idea that there's a biological racial hierarchy. He says, that's something we can draw a circle around and not seriously engage, but... I think we want to draw those circles as small as possible. Just because these sorts of claims are made by people who claim to speak for marginalized groups, I, I still think we should be skeptical of them, except in cases where they are so clearly harmful and so clearly wrong. And in this case, I don't think Tuval's paper was either you know, that we should just exclude them right off the bat. But that's a line drawn by somebody who's not in harm's way. On one side of the line, there's discourse worth taking seriously. And on the other side, there's a slippery slope to a dangerous idea. On one side, intellectual humility is a virtue. And on the other side, it's unscrupulous. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal.
Thanks, I think, Liza, for that searing piece on airing some of philosophy's dirty laundry. <laughs> I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Josh Landy. And today we're asking how to disagree humbly. We're joined now by Nathan Ballantyne, who is professor of philosophy at Fordham University, author of the forthcoming book, Knowing Our Limits. He's joining us from the studios of KUCI in Irvine, California. Nathan, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Ken. I'm delighted to be with both of you. So, uh, Nathan, let's start off by, I want to know what first got you interested. This is a great topic, but I want to know what first got you interested in the topic of disagreement, some argument with friend, foe, or family, your own very own Cain and Abel story <laughs> or Rebecca Tuvel uh, story? What got you interested at first? Well, I've been gripped by these issues since my childhood. I grew up in Canada in the 80s and 90s, and I remember a, a recurring thought. It's basically an analogy, and it struck me as a way to describe my life. I'd been given a kind of lottery ticket. I mean, here I was in Canada where people believe in democracy and universal health care and United Nations peacekeeping, but that's just one lottery ticket. I could have got different ones, and it's bewildering to realize that your parents, your schools, and everything else would be completely different had you grown up elsewhere if your lottery numbers had come up differently. And you come to think, well, not everybody gets a winning ticket. Some people, maybe most people, have convictions that are just wrong. So is my ticket a winner? What's really true here? Well, growing up, this was a very persistent idea. It bothered me. Eventually, I figured out you could actually study this. Um, you could think critically about these pictures and analogies, and this led me to epistemology. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I really like your metaphor of the of winning tickets and non-winning tickets, which kind of brings us back to something that Ken and I were arguing about earlier. How do you how do you tell the difference? How do you distinguish between people who have opinions worth taking seriously and people who don't without kind of setting yourself up arrogantly as the arbiter of everything? Can you do that at all? I mean, can you do that? Right. Well, I think you can. What's crucial to focus on is the evidence that we have concerning our own abilities to make judgments of other people and the kind of evidence that's going to be available to think about some topic. Um, so Ken mentioned an example where he learns people deny science, and then he ends up rejecting them. Well, I think Ken can be in a perfectly strong position to recognize, first of all, that the scientific consensus is on his side, um, that there are some deep confusions and misconceptions that are driving um, the uh, opponents of science. And knowing about these kinds of facts can put you in a position to actually properly set aside or, or dismiss the disagreement from that, others. Nathan, that, However, sounds, that sounds good. That sounds good. I, I'm with you so far. But uh -huh. take it back to our roving report. And that's an epistemically fraught situation. Those people who say transracialism is, is not okay, transgender is okay, Rebecca Tuvel is trying to figure out what's the difference, and she gets hammered. She gets hammered for the illegitimacy of her inquiry. What's going on there? Well, I think there are some people who believe that kind of case is a lot like your case of the uh, creationists. Right. Um, so there's a legitimate question about what cases are like that and what cases are a lot different. Um, it turns out that through the intellectual world, there's going to be disagreement about how to divide up cases. But clearly, everyone's going to find some cases have the following character. We're confronted with people who disagree, who are also aware of much of the same evidence that we're aware of. 
they're also uh, in possession of the skills and the virtues needed to think critically about this evidence. So if we're really confronted by them, we should feel sort of strange pressure to make sense of this disagreement. Why do we disagree? Is it the case that I'm wrong and this other person has got the truth? Or are they wrong? If we can't tell, yeah. that seems to lead us to this kind of lottery situation right. where we feel the arbitrariness of holding the view that we do. So Nathan, we're going to have to, this, you're raising, I think, the essential point, and we're going to have to dig into it after a short break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about humble disagreement with Nathan Ballantyne from Fordham University. We don't want to be so wishy-washy in the face of disagreement that we have no firm convictions at all, but we also don't want to be so stubborn that we never change our minds. How do we strike the right balance? Finding the golden mean between wishy-washiness and stubbornness, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. When is agreeing to disagree a healthy and humble response to conflict? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy, and we're asking about the art of humble disagreement. Our guest is Nathan Ballantyne from Fordham University. So, uh, Nathan, I think the example of Rebecca Tuvel and all that illustrates that this is not a cold-blooded thing. This is an intensely urgent thing. And so I want to ask you about how we go about deciding whether I'm in a situation like I am, say, with a creationist who may think <laughs> I'm going to ignore the creationist, whether or not he or she likes it. Right, that's on the one hand. Or a situation in which I'm, like a Rebecca Tuvel situation, I, I want to challenge this way of, I want to explore this way of thinking. There's other people over on the other side who present themselves as reasonable, uh, right? And from their point of view, I'm just being something. I don't know. How do I decide whether, you know, the creationist situation or, 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 or the Rebecca Tuvel situation? Well, I think the key question for us has to be, whether we're competent to make the judgments we make when we assess other people. We assess them as being um, about as equal to us in their competence, the evidence that they have, or we think that they're less than we are. We think they're not as good. And I'm wanting to just set aside all of the further kinds of uh, evaluations we make of people when we say you know, they're evil or they're uh, all of the other mean things that people end up saying about those who disagree with them. So. The really important question is the, our assessment of bias in other people. Um, this is a, a natural way to respond to those who disagree with us. We end up thinking, well, they've made some kind of mistake because they have a trait or a character a characteristic that leads them astray. Um, when d dismissing peers in this way, I think this is probably the most common reaction. You don't think, oh, well, this person is just as good as I am at answering this question. You think they're less than you. So that, um, seems, that seems right to me, but I mean, how do I know that I'm not the one who's, who's biased? Because they're going to see you. Right. They're going to see it differently from you, right? Right. Oh, of course they are. It turns out that your assessment of yourself matters here too, because you're making a relative assessment of you compared to them. And I think there's some really fascinating scientific evidence that bears on 
how competent we think we are in this situation. Uh, specifically, there are psychologists who've studied the uh, assessment of bias in others and ourselves, and what they found is that there are very different sources of information that we use when we're assessing bias. When we judge bias in other people, we don't look inside their heads and witness hmm. how they're conveniently overlooking troubling evidence or how they're moved by the forces of self-interest. No, we actually gauge their bias by focusing on their visible behavior and their identities. But when we judge bias in ourselves, we do something totally different. We focus on our own minds. We introspect. And we just ignore facts about our behavior and our identities. So and it sounds like, ultimately, yeah. what, what's going on here is that even if it's in our self-interest to think something, maybe we gain financially from thinking that way, but we ignore those kinds of facts and think about how things feel. So it sounds and like I, arguments... it's, it's going to be very hard for me to say, look, I'm not biased, you're biased, because you know, I'm, I'm probably just, I'm, I'm giving myself different treatment than I'm giving the other person. So, so that sounds like, gosh, it's going to be really hard for me to make this distinction between people I can ignore and people I need to take seriously. No, well, you can make it, but it's not going to be based on any deeper principle. Right. And, more, and moreover... Uh, uh, Nathan, this sounds to me like a recipe for what I'm going to call epistemic tribalism, which is kind of what Josh was accusing me of in the first place. I, they don't have to share my beliefs, but they have to share my habits of mind. How do I? But how do I notice whether they share my habits of mind by noticing whether they believe what I believe in the circumstances in which I believe it? That just sounds like uh, a recipe not for epistemic humility, but epistemic tribalism. Or am I missing something? No, that that sounds right to me. Um, the psychologists have shown that there's this really pervasive bias that influences our judgments about bias. So we're, we tend to think bias influences other people much more than ourselves. And if we end up making judgments about people basically based on what tribe they're a part of, we're going to think the people who are more like us are less biased than the people who are different. Um, so I agree, this is a recipe for a lot of arrogance. So are you telling me that there is no way? Because I ask you, how do I go about deciding? You, you seem to want to allow me to decide to pay attention to some and ignore others. You seem to want to allow me to do that. Well, how do I go about deciding this in a principled, respectable way? Now it sounds like you're telling me, yeah, lots of luck with that, Ken. So, <laughs> so what is it, Nathan? I mean, how do well, I go? Well, I do think, I do think that lots of luck, Ken, is the best uh, message. If you were going to be disagreeing, say, with your philosophy colleagues about complex metaphysical debates or with your friends who are informed and intelligent when you're talking about politics, I mean, good luck. But there are lots of cases where we're not talking about that kind of dispute at all. And instead, there are people telling us that the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. We can actually <laughs> dismiss them quite effectively, even knowing full well that there are these difficulties in making assessments about bias. Okay, Psychologists okay. don't tell us that it's impossible okay, to make right. assessments of bias okay, in others, so, just that it's hard. Okay, good, but, good. okay, so there's a modified message. I, I'm going to put a spin on this. I don't know if you're going to like it or not. There are these radical epistemic outliers. Okay, you can dismiss the radical epistemic outliers, but there are a lot of people who I have intense disagreement with over things of great import who aren't radical epistemic outliers, and I still want to disaggregate them into the ones I can ignore and the ones I can't ignore. Are you telling me, okay, bracket the radical epistemic outliers, you, you're, you got a real problem, Ken. That is my view, yeah. I, I think that... Finding out that we disagree should lead us to become much more open to the arguments and, 
and evidence that other people are bringing to us, and less confident in our own views. But I don't just think it's mere disagreement that pushes us there. I also think that reflection on this kind of competence that we have is going to really be required to push us the whole way toward much more humility. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about disagreement, how to disagree with uh, humbly. Uh, We'd love to have your comments or question. And John from Mountain View is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, John. What's your comment or question? Well, I'd like to offer for your consideration the somewhat cynical comment by J.A.C. Brown in his book, Techniques of Persuasion. He said, the will to believe is more powerful than any mere experience, and emotion is stronger than reason in the vast majority of people. Have fun with that. Okay, Okay, David, have some fun with that. (laughs) Take up uh, John's invitation and have some fun with that. What do you make of that? I was thinking about a, a line from Bertrand Russell. He said that, we don't need the will to believe, we need the will to find out. Um, I, wa- I guess I want to pass it to Ken and Josh. What are you thinking about this, <laughs> Look, I mean, this line? I, I think it fits nicely with what you were saying about biases. And I think you know, if, if we really want to, to try to get things right, we're going to have to tackle the fact that we're susceptible to all these cognitive biases. But I, so I totally agree with this, and I tend to be on the side of humility. But for the sake of argument, let me, let me press you a little bit in the other direction. I, I started thinking a little bit about uh, people like Martin Luther King, for example. I, I started thinking, what would the world have been like if he'd been more humble about his beliefs? I think we'd have been worse off. So, so I wonder, you know, aren't there cases where it's actually a good thing to have the courage of your convictions. I mean, think about Du Bois's idea of double consciousness. You know, this is letting other people get inside your head. So my, my question, I guess, is couldn't there be a worry if we're, if, we're, if we're attending to the fact we're biased and we're always trying to qualify our own positions and not be too arrogant, don't we risk losing the courage of our convictions and, and the ability to make change? Well, not, not necessarily. One question about Martin Luther King uh, is his epistemic situation. What kind of evidence did he have for these controversial views that he was putting forward? I myself am inclined to think that at least since the 18th or 19th century in America, there have been people who were fully aware of profoundly strong reasons for equality. Uh, People who were involved in uh, anti-slavery movements, people who were involved in the suffragette movement. These, These people they weren't just sort of flipping a coin and going one direction. I think they actually had insights. So we could think that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't have good evidence for his convictions, well, which I think... Well, look, I think he had good, perhaps good evidence for his belief that uh, certain things are deserved, certain things are forms of injustice, uh-huh. but his deeper belief that was required to... Uh, withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune is that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. it requires human agency in cooperation with the will of God. He had no no real evidence for that, right? Well, he kind of went back and forth about that because, but he thought you had to accept that on faith. Right. And so yes. that's like a belief in the in the face of the evidence that doesn't actually support it. And it, there seems to have been an essential role for his conviction beyond the evidence mm-hmm. that the arc of the moral universe not only bends toward justice, but requires human agency to help it bend. Well, that's going to require another type of assessment. I was thinking about the specific belief that he has that would be rejected by 
uh, racist Southern right. governors. Right. Right. Um, so uh, I was thinking that he could be completely reasonable to reject them right. because he has excellent reason to believe in equality. These further beliefs that motivate people to act in the world are, I think, a really fascinating topic of discussion. So one type of evaluation you can make about them is epistemic. And you can say, well, maybe the evidence is ambiguous. We live in a world that's you know, not completely clear about whether the arc of justice is bending a certain way. But he lived in, in a particular way that manifested this conviction. Um, I'm inclined to maybe judge him or evaluate this belief in terms of its um, practical benefits. Right. I, um, that's, I, that's one assessment yeah. we can make about it. Did, did this help him do good things? Well, if it did, then we might want to say, well, it's a positive belief, right. even I, if it's not held on great evidence. So I, there are I, different types of evaluation. I think that's an important point, so that these beliefs, beliefs serve many different purposes, mm -hmm. and one wants to evaluate them relative to the purposes. But we should let some callers in here. Michael, all the way from Boston. I hope I assume you're listening online, uh, Michael. Yes. Uh, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Or else Michael. I have extremely good ears. <laughs> um, or an extremely good radio. Um I think if we're going to try to talk about how we can uh, disagree, we also have to talk about, or why we can disagree, we also have to talk about why we're talking in the first place. Um, if we're trying to persuade, if we're trying to test our own beliefs, if we're trying to persuade a third party, if we're trying to be irritating, which is what trolls do, um, I'm thinking also that in there's a question about when we can uh, discuss something is largely, is partially a matter of on what terms. Uh, there's a difference between two association football teams uh, playing soccer with wildly different strategies and uh, one side playing soccer and the other uh, side playing rugger. They yeah. will never agree, right. or there's a very good chance that they will never agree that the game's been won or lost if, if they're, they're playing completely different games. Michael, I think you're making a, a really good point, and I thank you for the call. And I'm, I'm just going to follow up, uh, uh, Nathan, because I think Michael's making a really good point. Because uh, I, I want to just say that this is like core to, for, for example, various approaches to uh, political philosophy, that public discourse among people who are trying to build a polity together and regard each other as free and equal citizens is one thing, or as Habermas said, people who are engaged in conversation that jointly aims at truth, that's one thing. And people who are just like shouting at each other mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. a contest where one is just diminished and the other is the victor. That's a completely different thing. So one of the things we have to ask, I think Michael's right, why are we talking together? Because right. Right? that's going to shape something about how we approach disagreement. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I'm thinking that the normative questions we ask when we sh about disagreement, should we disagree or not, um, are largely about what's appropriate to believe given our evidence. Um, so there are further questions about social engagement, um, how we should engage with others. Um, and I wanted, I guess I want to distinguish between these questions. So I am in agreement with, with Michael that these are different issues. But when we're talking about disagreement, what we mean is a kind of conflict of beliefs. And that those conflicts can happen in all sorts of different contexts. One type of evaluation we may have about people who disagree is entirely focused on the epistemic uh, facts of the matter, what, what our evidence supports. But there could be totally different types of evaluation that, that kick in when we're thinking about 
how politics works. Yeah, and it, it seems to me, I, I mean, I, I think Michael's point is a really good one. What are we trying to achieve? I mean, I think there are multiple there are multiple reasons for arguing with a certain amounts of humility. One of them, the kind of Habermasian, what, what, what kind of a world do we want to live in? Do we want a world in which we can actually make some progress on important and difficult issues by talking together? Um, but maybe another one is just a more local one-on-one kind of thing. I mean, you, you've talked about uh, in, you know, data about biases. I mean, I wonder if you've thought a little bit, Nathan, about how we convince people because right so there's been some there have been some studies suggesting that if you actually use evidence in arguments you it just backfires and you end up convincing people of the thing they first thought so maybe a little strategic humility can be helpful if your aim is is to convince somebody else well um i'm reminded of uh, socrates and the sophists here um so i agree that rhetoric is very different than argument but I'm inclined to think that there's at least one very special, sacred domain of conversation when we're trying together to seek the truth, and rhetoric isn't going to cut it there. Right. Uh, what we should really do is get people to believe the right things for the right reasons. Right. But not all conversations are about seeking the truth. But I want to, I want to talk about that, right? Because in a pluralistic uh, liberal democracy, it's not all about seeking the truth. It's just seeking a fair structure to, that allow us each to go possibly our own separate ways. But we'll come back to that. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're asking about disagreement and humility with Nathan Ballantyne from Fordham University. In our last segment, we'll explore ways of cultivating intellectual humility. Do we need to redesign our schools, our politics, our media? Yes, to all of the above. <laughs> Cultivating humility when Philosophy Talk continues. Only someone lacking humility would call the whole thing off over such a small disagreement as that, right? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy, and our guest is Nathan Ballantyne from Fordham University. We're asking about how to disagree humbly. And we've got a caller, Milton from Oakland. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Milton. What's your comment or question? Well, hello there. Some disagreements can be of critical importance and Humility might go out the window. For example, with family disagreements between a husband and a wife and or their children. For example, one of the parents is clear, clearly a lousy mother or father. No one would disagree with that. And yet the better parent tries to compromise and there is no, no agreement reached. This could lead to some critical results like a divorce will the custody of children be the, the um, humbly agreeing to disagree <clears throat> in a sense goes out the window in a, in a situation like this and we all know that Thank, thanks for the thanks for the comment Milton so uh, Nathan you got a thought about Milton's uh, observation um, well I think in cases of family conflict uh, I'm guessing that often evidence goes out the window. Um, we're not responding to arguments in the way that we would like to in uh, a more intellectual arena. We're responding with our emotions, and this can make 
compromise extremely difficult. Um, so I, I wonder what the ideal family would be with yeah. these people never blow up at each other and yeah. um, always get get always get along. Well, probably not. That doesn't seem like human behavior. Um, yeah. So, so look, I, I I think Milton's point raises a broader thing, and it touches on what I was getting at it in the, at the end of the last segment, which I want to I want to come back to. I think there are spheres, many spheres, in which disagreement with the other. Uh, it puts pressure on you of some kind of some kind like scientific rationality right it's two experimenters doing the same experiment and they come to different conclusions about something we want more experimentation because we want to settle it right there are other spheres in which disagreement doesn't quite put the same pressure on you we disagree about abortion right uh and we're not going to convince each other about the probity of abortion but we have to live together in a polity so we have to settle on not whether abortion is right or not, but something about how to conduct ourselves together in light of these disagreements. Politics is about how to not come to blows right. in the face of reasonable disagreement that are not going to be solved by further arguing. You know, Rawls talks about the burdens of judgment and comprehensive schemes and all that sort of stuff. I mm -hmm. mean, do you agree that there are spheres in which disagreement puts pressure on us and inter and di and di other kinds of spheres in which it puts a different kind of pressure on us well of course um, given our practical purposes in um, living together in a society uh, where you know fair play and um, uh, the rule of law are relevant d disagreement should mean something v quite different than when we're simply seeking the truth um, but I wonder how these two concerns fit together because exactly. we don't want to, to completely ignore this truth-seeking drive that we should have when we do politics. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what to say. I think it's a mess. <laughs> and I think that's why these... I, think this I why, can sign on to that. <laughs> I think, But I think that's why these conversations get so fraught because there's two sides of this, yeah. right? There's the scientific mm -hmm. truth-seeking. We want to claim that this is so and use that as a justification. And then against the other who, for whatever reason, won't accept that and wants to get on with his or her life, we, we, it's really fraught. Well, I'm, I, I I'm reminded... I'd like to refer to a, a, you know, a philosophy term, mutually regulating ideals, right? So maybe what we're talking about here is that we have two ideals, right? An ideal of, of truth and knowledge on the one side, and an ideal of kind of comity and uh, a, a kind of pluralist democracy, people getting along, not fighting on the other side. And maybe what we want to be doing is trying to balance those ideals against each other. We may not always be able to have both, uh, but we need kind of a, a skill of judgment to know, well, this is a situation where you're going to have to set aside your uh, relentless desire to get it right and just get into that mode of, well, look, let's have the kind of conversation that's going to keep us harmonious. Like the, like the caller just said, you know, an argument in a family, it, it's not always the most important thing to get it right. No, I like this idea of balancing, and I'm thinking now that there are different um, psychological mindsets that actually lead people in very different directions um, here. So Interesting. there's some psychological work on uh, it's kind of a quest perspective, and people see their beliefs as an attempt to figure things out. They're seeking. They're looking for more truth. And other people use their beliefs as a kind of defense. So when they're challenged, when there's a worldview threat, when they feel 
anxious because someone's challenged their deeply held beliefs. They actually ramp up their confidence and they use their belief as a kind of uh, protection uh, right. mechanism. So questers and people who are more defensive are going to think very differently about these regulating ideals. So I think that I think that's really illuminating. I think it helps us understand what was going on in that uh, uh, Rebecca Tuvel case. She was a quester, in a sense. She's right. trying to figure out where does the logic of this argument go. And there were people mm -hmm. with a stake in this debate, uh, a lived stake, who f saw mm -hmm. that as an uh, uh, some kind of attack, uh, and 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 got into this defensive mode. Uh, so what happens when that happens? You just have people like, I don't know, they're really at loggerheads, which, which leads me to want to ask you another question. <laughs> uh, we're going to do something for you that we only we, we do on Philosophy Talk from time to time. We're going to make you czar of some domain <laughs> where you have plenary powers. And here's what I'm going to do. I know this is a lot a heavy burden, Nathan. I know it's a heavy burden. We're going to make you in charge of society and culture and belief formation and argument. Anything you say goes... And we're going to give you the task of redesigning things so that that we cultivate more intellectual humility in ourselves. Well, okay, what's the first thing? Just to focus on the first thing that you might try to change. Well, as Sar, I would like to proceed by making a committee, and I appoint Ken and Josh. This is fantastic. <laughs> Good decision. So um, what we're going to begin uh, with a little thought experiment. So let's suppose we want to make people better able to humbly disagree. And let's say we have two different tools to actually make that happen. One tool is principles of evidence. The other tool is social incentives. So pr principles are these things that we can talk about and write in books. Social incentives are very different, right? They're things like peer pressure, media influence, government policies, and they get woven into our everyday lives. So. To make someone respond humbly to disagreement more often, which kind of tool would you pick? Oh, I'd pick the 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 not the principle. I like the principles, mm. right? But I think principles live through being implemented in a social world, in a social structure. So I would say, let's take this, guys. Let's on our committee. Let's take this as a design problem. We know what the principles <laughs> are that we want to induce. We we talk about those principles, but we want to design social, educational, cultural mechanisms that will cultivate. Uh, uh, a fealty to these principles. So we'd have to change the media, we'd have to change our schools. That's what I think. I don't know. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I mean, maybe people should take more philosophy classes? Well, I don't know, because that's going to tell them the principles. Well, but I'm that's not, not going to redesign okay. the, lived, uh, right. the lived epistemic landscape. Yeah, I'm in agreement landscape. with Ken. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, I was I worried think, you were going to fire think, him. No, no. <laughs> so the, um, I think what's crucial here is understanding how principles of evidence and social institutions can be put together in the right way to create people who are capable of following the principles. And this is actually a really difficult thing to do in a society that can't agree on what's most important. Right. Um, but education is obviously a central part of this. Um, yeah, that's what I was, I was obviously being a bit flippant, but I, I, I do mean it seriously that we're not just teaching people principles, we're giving people a kind of model uh, of, mm -hmm. of how to disagree in a humble way. We take each other seriously. We often disagree, but we try to understand each other's argument. We try to enter it from within. We don't just write people off because they're from a certain town or country or whatever, right? No ad hominem. So aren't we doing that in 
in our educational mission? Is that yeah, part of what we're doing? I, I, I agree that that's what we're aiming to do. Right. I do think, though, there's a question of, so I, I want to, so uh, you're an epistemologist by trade, uh, uh, Nathan, and I, and, I've, and, I, uh, and I have this thing. I have this thing about what I call a priori epistemology for which I don't have much use. And I say to my epistemology friends, I want you to come out of the airy, the air, right, and get down to the ground where institutions have to be designed because the social epistemology of belief formation in the 21st century is a mess. And we need to think about how to design these, these mediating devices and structures and our culture and our culture of argument so that people's beliefs are, are better. So I want I, I want I want epistemologists to be engineers of of the social world. You think that's a a crazy thing to want? Absolutely not. Um, I think this is actually taking up the most exciting epistemology from the 17th and 18th century, when there was a cultural crisis. Um, basically, there's all of this religious and political conflict. There's not a sense that. No one, anyone knows the authority. What, who's the authority now after the scientific revolution comes along and the reformation, the counter-reformation happen? And what philosophers do is they turn to deep questions about method and knowledge and proper opinion. And they're trying to come up with ways to reorganize society around rules that will make us better able to understand the truth and to also live together. I see in works of John Locke, very much the spirit. And I think that's, it's possible to at least aspire to that in the present day. Well, on that hopeful uh, note, Nathan, on that hopeful note, I'm going to uh, thank you for joining us. This has been a humbling and inspiring conversation. Here, here. Well, thank you so much. Our guest has been Nathan Ballantyne, professor of philosophy at Fordham University, author of the forthcoming book, Knowing Our Limits. So, Josh, you got one last tiny uh, thought for us now? Well, Ken, I haven't changed my thoughts from start to finish. I'm kidding. I, I, think, <laughs> I think clearly it's really complicated. There are situations where you should stick to your guns. There are situations where you should agree to disagree. There are situations where you should be open-minded. Lord, grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, there you go. And I hope epistemologists come out of the laboratory and into the field and help us redesign the epistemic landscape. This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers, where our motto is, get this, cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you, you can become a partner in that community just by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send your question to philosophytalk.org. Uh, sorry, comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on our blog. Now a man who humbly disagrees with most things, especially speed limits, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, one of the problems with disagreeing these days is that more people are nuts than used to be. Well, they're always nuts, but their beliefs were confined to pamphlets, self-published tomes with charts and pictures of pyramids and what the aliens might look like had we photographs of them. Now we have the Internet with outlets like Medium and Quora and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, which combines the American tradition of respect for individual belief combined with the authority bestowed on anything said out loud. So we have a core belief that President Kennedy was not killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. If you believe he was, you're a dupe, a cuck, a patsy, because President Kennedy, in fact, was killed by... Take your pick. Russians, the mob, Cubans, the CIA, by lefties, because Kennedy was going to get us deeper into the Vietnam War, by the right, because Kennedy was going to pull us out of Vietnam. Now, expand the conspiracy impulse. We have birthers who insist that President Obama was not born in Hawaii. What is gained by this belief is beyond me. We have truthers who believe that 9-11 was caused by missiles, hidden bombs, and even in one YouTube video I watched, sound waves that vibrated the towers into collapsing. Who done it? 
Well, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the CIA, again, Dick Cheney. You can disagree about the details. Truthers don't care about that. If it was Arabs or Jews dancing in New Jersey as they watched the towers fall, it doesn't matter. Just so the central narrative, planes into buildings, does not stand. It's crisis actors and George Soros all the way down. It's impossible to disagree with any of that. I mean, it's possible, but it's a black hole, all of it. Don't get Bob going on Hillary. Don't get Vince going on Trump. Now, back in the 60s, the early days of Who Killed the Kennedys, people could only talk mano a mano. There's none of this LOL, BRB, emoji, emoticon, no cute little avatar saying, I saw we I said something offensive. None of that. If I offended, it was get out of my house and don't come back. Commie, Nazi, hippie, middle-class tool. Doors slammed, voices shouted. None of this unfriending nonsense. Now, I called my high school principal a fascist in the school paper, allegedly, causing many differing opinions to fill the air in my little Midwestern town. Opinions about freedom of the press, about the ingratitude of the long-haired young, about respect to elders, about the Vietnam War, about the ongoing cultural crisis. My high school principal threatened to sue me for libel. But then we stopped the war, man, and we turned to cocaine and voting for Reagan. Scandals abounded, nobody cared, until the Internet. Now it's easier to have an opinion than ever, louder opinions. And we have homegrown algorithms in our head now. We can size up people in a nanosecond and then retreat to our corners where we know everything and yet are always wrong. Even when we're right, we're wrong. In other words, saying the Earth is flat takes less than a second. Longer than that to disprove with optics and gravity, but that won't convince the flat Earther anyway, so why even bother? No matter what ridiculous claim is made that Hillary Clinton is smuggling orphan sex slaves into a D.C. pizza parlor, for example, news outlets have to send a reporter to the pizza parlor to check it out, so just let it go. It'll morph into something else just as ridiculous. We have a president who is very big on conspiracy theories, if they affect him. But if there is a deep state secretly running things, he is the president. Wouldn't he be in charge of it? Couldn't he ask for a memo to explain things for him? Of course, he'd have to read it. Also remember, President Trump was a big birther back in the day. He claims he actually sent private detectives to Hawaii to ferret out the truth about Obama's birth. And if you believe that, we're in bigger trouble than I thought. Well, that's just my opinion. Don't want to argue about it, really. I'd call him a lying fascist, but the last time I said something like that about an authority figure, I got kicked out of the house. So... Let's agree to disagree. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Angela Johnston and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. We have to leave it there, gentlemen. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. We're going to have to leave it there. (laughs) All right. Well, we've got to leave it there. We're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. We'll have to leave it there. No! Don't leave it there! Why would you leave it there? There is a terrible place to leave it!